And we sometimes fall into patterns of rehearsing those things. And they become our identity. They become our reality. And it can be distressing when people malign us, when people speak slanderous things about us, when they lie and they gossip and the gossip catches on and that's what people believe about us. That the things that people say that are not true, the slanderous things they say, become what people believe about us. And that can be distressing, especially when it's prolonged, when it lasts for a long time. Psalm 4 is written in the midst of that kind of situation. That kind of slanderous lies being told about David, about the people of God, about Jesus himself. Slanderous lies that stick, that become the gossip that people tell about David. They were false. They were lies, but they hurt like swords. David cries out to the Lord, but... In the midst of that, in the midst of this psalm, we, we hear David's unwavering confidence and his faith in God. His trust that it doesn't matter the circumstances of his life. He can still have joy. He can still have peace. He can still respond in a right way to those accusations. We learn three crucial coping mechanisms, if you will. Three crucial tools to take with us when we face prolonged distress, when we face slanderous lies against us. And even if we haven't faced that, we can identify with the people who have by singing this psalm. We learn not to, av- to avoid their slanderous lies. We learned that we are not to respond by taking personal vengeance. And we learn not to sink into the hopelessness of despair. So this this morning, as you're able, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm 4, we'll read together. It's also printed for you in our bulletin. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that in the midst of our most distressing situations, we can draw strength and confidence because we belong to you. Help us, Father, to be angry and not to fall into sin. 
to worship you rightly, to remember your promises, not to fall into despair, but to have the hope of the resurrection, the hope of your eternal spirit, the hope of peace and rest, and knowing that we dwell securely, even in the midst of our distress. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. The psalmist begins, and I want you to notice, because this is the first time it comes in the psalms, it says at the beginning in, in the ESV, it's a, it's a small superscription, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And this is actually to the chief musician, the one who is leading worship. And it is a musical notation. It's directions on how it is to be sung. It's to be sung with stringed instruments. And it's to be sung by the corporate people of God. But you'll notice that it is an individual lament. It's a lament. It is a lament, but it's also a psalm of confidence. It's a lament because David is facing a situation where he's being maligned, he's being slandered. And I, wanna, I want to suggest many, many commentators believe that this is the same occasion of when Absalom rebelled against David. But I don't think that this psalm fits that situation. And the reason why is because Psalm 3 had the title, This is what happened when David fled from Absalom, and Psalm 4 does not. And also, Psalm 3 perfectly suited that situation with David calling on the Lord to be a shield, guarding him from enemies. But here, it is different. Here you notice that he calls out to God who is his righteousness when he was in distress. But the plea, the lament, when he lays out his complaint is because men are slanderously spreading and believing lies about him. And there are other occasions that fit better with this psalm in the life of David. Think, think for instance, when he's on the run from Saul. Remember, Saul was spreading lies about David, telling everyone, David is trying to kill me and take the throne. And no such thing was happening. David, in fact, was fleeing for his life. And on two occasions, vindicated himself from that false accusation. Remember, Saul was there. He went to relieve himself in the cave, and David was hiding in the middle of it. And he went and he cut off a corner of his garment. And then when Saul left the cave, he said, My, my Lord, look, I've cut a part of your guy. I could have taken your life in my hands. Your lies are not true. You have said that I'm murderously trying to kill you. I'm seeking your throne. I am the rightful Anointed king, David must have thought, but he wasn't ever going to reach out his hand against the Lord's. And that happened again when his people, his men crept into the camp where Saul was and they took his pitcher and his spear. And then when he comes up to the mountaintop, he, he yells down and he, he says, who's guarding the king? How is it that you let me sneak in? I could have taken his life. And both times he vindicates himself from those false accusations. He proves that those slanderous lies are not true. There are other occasions, I think, that fit better than when Absalom was rebelling against David. I think it's better to see it as arising out of that period of time when David was in the wilderness, fleeing for his life. 
and often faced these kinds of challenges. And the problem that David mourns in this lament is less that someone has lied about him, but that publicly these lies are being believed by others. The first point that I want to draw out here, especially from verses 2 and 3, is that we are to avoid believing the slanderer. Avoid believing the slanderer. And that means if it's about you, and it also means if it's about someone else. It means avoid believing the slanderer. And I want to show you why. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long would you love? Would you love vain words and seek after lies? We love gossip. How many of you have been tempted, don't raise your hand, to click on those little gossip ads on the bottom of things that say this person, something happened and their whole life has exploded. Click here and you can find out, right? It's everything you can do not to click on it. They know that. That's why they put them at the bottom there. We want, and why are our magazines filled with gossip about people, celebrities, people, leaders? We want to hear those things. We crave them. Some secular sociologists such as Jonathan Haidt suggest that that gossip is actually underappreciated. He says, and he's a secular sociologist, he says, quote, in a world with no gossip, people would not get away with murder, but they would get away with a trail of rude, selfish, and antisocial acts, often oblivious to their own violations. Gossip extends our moral emotional toolkit. In a gossipy world, we don't just feel vengeance and gratitude towards those who hurt or help us. We feel pale, but still instructive flashes of contempt and anger toward people whom we might not even know. We feel vicarious shame and embarrassment when we hear about people whose schemes, lusts, and private failings are exposed. Gossip is a policeman and a teacher. Without it, there would be chaos and ignorance. Now, that's interesting. I've never heard somebody paint gossip in a favorable light. But Scripture does not take a high view of gossip. It condemns it. Gossip is most often identified with the whispering of secrets that are slanderous. Moses says in Leviticus 19, 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. And Paul warns the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians twelve twenty. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. In Scripture, slandering a brother is verbal assassination of their character and reputation. We murder our brother or sister's reputation when we spread lies about them, when we say things that are not true, or we overbear the truth. We massage the facts to make them fit what we want them to fit with. When we don't speak truthfully, when we don't consider what our words will do, we are assassinating the character and reputation of our brother 
or sister in Christ. And the terms for slander and gossip in the Greek are diabolos. That's the same root that we derive the word devil from. And of course it is diabolical that we would lie because Satan is the father of lies. He has been lying from the beginning. And so when we slander, when we malign somebody's character, when we slander and spread gossip that is not true, we are acting according to the devil. And the truth is, we are not atomized individuals, but the body of Christ. We are members of one another, united together in a bond. We are all united together in that bond. Paul says, for the whole Law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, we are prone to not recognize that we are not individuals, but we are members of one another. That was the reason Paul gave in Ephesians 4 for why we should not lie and also why we should work hard because we are members of one another. But oftentimes, gossip, it's hard to recognize. It's easy to spot in other people. We might know when they're gossiping. But it's hard to spot in ourselves. There are four diagnostic questions we can ask ourselves before we say something to someone about another person. First is, why am I saying this? What's the purpose of it? By answering that question, we can determine if it's even useful to say in the, in the first place. Second, is it possible there's another side to this story? And almost always there is. And thirdly, would I feel comfortable saying this to Jesus? Ooh. A lot of our speech we might not feel comfortable saying to Jesus. And fourthly, am I building up the person I'm speaking to by sharing this? Is this necessary? What's the purpose of me telling this juicy little tidbit that I learned about Susie? Is it it really necessary for me to tell John about this other thing that I heard Peter is doing? Is that, would that be beneficial to both parties? Would I say that in the presence of both of them? Would I feel comfortable saying that to Jesus? And am I building up the person I'm speaking to by sharing this? In David's case, he is on the receiving end of others' gossip and slander. People who are not asking these diagnostic questions. They're not examining their own hearts before they speak. Or before they pass on that gossip to someone else. And the attended effect of these lies was to turn David's honor into shame. And it's not just David who faces these kinds of distressing situations. Jesus warned that this would happen. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus, speaking this, is the chief 
one who is slandered. Many of us, there is often some grain of truth to the things that people spread about us. Some little shred that gets outsized, some little portion of it that's true because we are sinful. We do do things that are wrong. We often do not act the way that we should. And we fall far short of God's glory. And when we don't own up to those things, people see it and they respond, sometimes by blowing it out of proportion. But Jesus never sinned. Jesus never said one wrong word. He never did one wrong thing. He never had one wrong thought. And yet he was slandered over and over again. In fact, it was slander that led to his trial. They could not pin anything on him. They had to get all these false accusers to come and bring trumped up charges. The question is, how should we respond to such situations? They're going to happen. People are going to speak ill of you in your workplace. They're going to find out you're a Christian, and the next thing they're going to say is bigot. They are going to slander you. People are going to spread lies about you. How do we respond? Well, we respond how David responded. He says in verse 3, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. You see, David has drawn a firm confidence from the fact that Jesus, that God himself has called him. That God has set him apart. In this, he's remembering his baptism. He's remembering his circumcision. He's saying, I have been included in the people of God. And that means that I've been set apart by God specially. And that means that God is preserving me. And that means that when I cry to him, God hears and he responds. When I cry, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He can be assured that God hears him. He knows that he has the ear of God. And that is in distinction to the wicked, who God turns his face from. And he doesn't respond to their prayers. They cry out to him over and over again. And he says, I will not respond. And David draws confidence from his status. That he is objectively a member of the people of God. Your baptism is not nothing. It marks you out. God has placed his name on you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you belong to him. We see him in the Psalms just to be drawing ourselves back to what John preached on in Romans 8. What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing can separate you. Why? Because you belong to him. You are his. And he will hear your prayer. So first we are to avoid believing slander by arming ourselves with the confidence and strength that comes from knowing that we belong to God and that He hears our prayer. Don't listen to the lies. Listen to what your Heavenly Father says about you. When He says, My son. The 
But secondly, we are also to avoid personal vengeance. David knows that the tendency for those facing the onslaught of slanderous lies is to want to take vengeance into their own hands. We, we say, oh, you said it about me. I'm going to say it about you. We go tit for tat and we, we want to go and run a, our own smear campaign. But David says, be angry in verse 4 and do not sin. He doesn't discount the fact that it might make you angry when people spread lies about you. It might make you angry when people believe things that are not true of you. And that's okay. That's okay. It's your response from that anger that could be sinful, that could be wrong, and that is to avoid. To avoid sin, we are to engage in two spiritual disciplines that David outlines for us, both of which provide avenues to be angry and not to sin. The first is meditation, and the second is worship. David encourages us to ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. And that, literally, in the Hebrew, is to speak to yourself upon your bed. Rehearse to yourself on your bed. Meditate upon What? What are we to meditate upon? The Word of God. Of course, the Word of God. But immediately, verse 3. Immediately, we're to to meditate on the fact that we belong to God. But what is often our first response? What do we begin to rehearse over and over again? Is it the promises of God? Is it that He has said, You are my Son? No, we rehearse over and over again the lies. We, we hear it played like a loop in our head what people are saying about us. We're not drawing our confidence from God because we're sapping our strength by rehearsing over and over and over again that distressing thing that someone has said. But David commends that we should ponder in our hearts, on our beds, and be silent. And he's talking about pondering the Word of God. He's talking about rehearsing to yourself the promises of God, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, that He had endured such slanderous lies so that He could make you His own. It's not meditation, is not emptying your mind. It's filling it. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. And that's not what we do. We, we need to change our minds. We need to repent. We have to remember that God will not accidentally believe the slander. It's not as if God will all of a sudden hear something that's not true of us and then begin to believe it. Oh, I, I, I didn't know that about that person. But now I do and now I'm not going to be favorable to, to them. That's not how God is. What, what, what was it that Jack Miller was always saying? Cheer up. Because you're way worse 
than you could ever imagine. You think that it's that little slander that somebody has spread about you that would make you contemptible in the eyes of God, but you don't see how sinful you actually are. And at the same time, how much God loves you. We're never in danger of God seeing us other than what we are, sinners saved by His grace. God is not fooled by slander. We hear slander and we think, i got to get a PR group going. i got to get out in front of this thing. i got to start heading it off. i got to do my own campaign to try to figure out how to get around these slanders and lies and make sure that I steer the narrative. But God is the only PR rep that you need. You just need to rest in Him, knowing that you belong to Him and He hears your prayer. Meditating upon His promises has the effect of placing our current distress in stark relief against the promise of eternity. Paul says, and Paul endured greater hardship than any of you could imagine. Paul said, this, this is just light, momentary affliction. When I set it against all of eternity, when I place this distressing moment, and then I look at it in light of all of eternity, spending glorious, endless days with God in joy, with no lies, no slander, it's nothing. Doesn't even compare. When our heart is quieted and safely trusts in God, the natural response is the second spiritual discipline worship. We're so habitually prone to rail against outward religion that it can be tempting to reduce any prescribed acts to just going through the motions. Oh, those people that. Hope Church, they sit down, stand up, recite creeds, and they do all kinds of weird stuff. It's just a form. It's just the forms. But the Lord doesn't say, don't offer sacrifices. He says, offer right sacrifices. See, God himself is the one that instituted the form. It's the human heart that corrupts it. It's not the liturgy that ba- that's bad. And in fact, every church has a liturgy. Three songs and a sermon is a liturgy. It's just not a very good one. But we think worship is supposed to be spontaneous and unscripted and driven by our emotions. But, and if it's not, is that even worship? Offer right sacrifices. There are right sacrifices. There is a way to approach God. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. We can't help but think about Cain and Abel. They both offered sacrifices. And I would argue that both of them are acceptable sacrifices. The problem is not the sacrifice. Some have tried to make a distinction between blood and and vegetables. That's not what's on display there. What's on display there is the human heart. One is offering sacrifices out of trust and love for God. And in the sacrifice sees Jesus Christ. And the other one is trying to appease God. 
all right, here's what I have to do. Here's my, here's my tithe. Here's my worship service. I went once this month. God is not pleased with that. Because God wants your heart. But oftentimes we get so confused by this that we rail against the form. And we say, it's got to be the form. That's the problem. And then we throw the baby out with the bathwater. But David said, offer right sacrifices. But why is this Why is this the response to be angry and do not sin? David is trying to get us to avoid personal vengeance. Because what happens when somebody slanders is you, is you want to go after them. You want to be done with them. And David is saying, you have to avoid that. And the only way to do it is to ponder the Word of God and to worship Him rightly. But why is worship an answer to that question? And my My contention is that it's because worship is warfare. If we are prone to want to take personal vengeance when slighted by slanderous lies, the answer of how to be angry and to not sin is worship. Which is a posture that accepts that the Lord is God and as God is deserving not merely a praise and honor, but also a trust in His promises. And one of which is that vengeance belongs to the Lord and He will repay. Our God is a warrior God. And He will not allow the wicked to get away with it forever. They will slander us and malign us, but in the end, we will be vindicated from all those false accusations. And this is also why we need to restore the psalms to their proper place in our hymnody. How many of you have ever sung a song or a hymn that encouraged the wicked to melt away like the slime of a slug? Or how about calling on God to break their teeth in their mouth? Many hymnals give us Christ the lover of my soul, but we miss Christ the warrior king. We must have both. We don't want one to the exclusion of the other because we will get a saccharine, sappy love Jesus that produces those praise choruses that are barely distinguishable between a love song to your girlfriend. We must restore the Psalms to its prominence in our hymnody. And we must draw from there because it presents the biblical mean between love, God loves us, and we have Psalm 23, but we also have Psalms like Psalm 3 that says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. We have to have a balance between both of those. In worship, we call on God to do what we cannot Be angry and not sin. God does not sin when He strikes the wicked down. God does not sin when in His wrath He judges those who speak slanderous lies. We do. Because we we can't barely sort between what is slanderous and what is truth. We remind ourselves that we belong to the Lord by meditating on 
For instance, Romans 8. And then we worship the God who is in the process of making all things new. A process which will right every wrong and spread the truth over every slanderous lie. So put your trust in the Lord and and avoid the hopeless despair of those who say in verse 6, Who will show us some good? That's despair talking. That's the, the one who has been listening to those slanderous lies, who's been rehearsing them over and over again in their head, who has stopped believing that God has set them apart and that He hears their prayers. And their response is, Who will show us some good? We are hopeless. And there will always be those who cannot see through the fog of lies to the bedrock of God's promise. How do we avoid this? How do we avoid falling into hopeless despair? We have to remind ourselves. We have to call on the Lord to relieve our distress. And we have to remind ourselves that joy and rest are not contingent on our present circumstances. Our joy and the rest and peace we can have, we can have in the middle of people slandering us. The psalmist provides a a stark contrast between this hopeless despair of those who around him whose gaze is fixed on their circumstances. That's all they're looking at. That's all they see. All they see is the problems all around them. Right? You know them by their, their negative, pessimistic attitude. And I know because I'm one of them. Right? The, the, the world is a glass half empty. And they're struggling to see, to rise above the lies of that, the fog of those lies to believe the promises of God. To remind themselves not to fall into despair. I was, I was thinking, remember the, the story of David and Nabal. Remember how David, he, he functioned as kind of a wall to these guys out in the wilderness. He's guarding their shepherds and their sheep. Nothing is lost from them. And then Nabal comes into town. He goes to shear his sheep, which is a company with a great feast. And, and David sends some of his servants up and just asks for a little gift. He says, we've been, we've been working hard right alongside you guys. You've lost nothing. We've been supporting you. And Nabal just sends him away empty-handed. He says, should I give of all my hard work to just anybody who breaks away from their master? Can you imagine this on the lips of those men? Who, who will show us some good? We have been out here in the wilderness. David it was supposed to be king. None of the promise, none of the things that he told us were going to happen. He said we were gonna, we'd be in Jerusalem by now. Who's going to show us some good? There were many times where David would have faced this kind of person who's falling into hopeless despair. But you can hear in his plea, David's faith. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. He is drawing imagery from Moses' shining face. What happens when Moses goes into the presence of God? His face is transformed. He's transformed because he's seen the face of God. He's speaking to him as a man. And when he goes out, you can see it reflected on his face. Because when you go into the presence of God, you are changed. 
That's the central tenet of the, of the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. David is, is pronouncing a benediction upon himself. He's saying, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, and give us your peace. And what happens when the Lord shines his, his face on David? The result is predictable. Joy. Joy. You have put more joy in my heart than when their grain, than they have when their wine and grain abound. We have a sign that is hung in our house. It's, it's now in my office and it says, The joy you feel has little to do with your circumstances of your life and everything to do with the focus. Nothing in this world will give you lasting joy if the Lord is not shining His face upon you. You can be the richest man. You can have all the greatest gifts. You can be wise. You can enjoy all the things that this world offers. If you do not have the Lord's face shining on you, you will not have joy. You might be happy for a time. You might experience some happiness, but you will not have joy. And then, when everything is stripped from you, you will have no joy at all. And you'll have no happiness. But David hasn't left his distressing situation. He's sitting right in the middle of it. He is still hearing the slanderous lies of others. Nothing about his outward situation has changed. The circumstances remain. But he says, you have put more joy in my heart. God is the one who puts it in our hearts. When the Lord shines his face upon you and places joy in your heart, slander and lies could be coming all around you and your present circumstances may be the most distressing you've ever experienced. But that won't matter because you will be at peace since it is the Lord who gives his people rest. Singing the psalm amid distress, we arm ourselves with the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Ephesians 6, 16. If God is on our side, then who can be against us? If God has set apart the godly and hears their prayer, he will turn to them in distress and graciously answer their prayer for relief. Then in peace, we will rest from the weary onslaught of the enemies who never seem to grow tired of trying to turn our honor into shame. The Lord Christ himself who suffered the worst slander possible and endured the full weight of God's avenging wrath and his death on the cross, said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And this peace, peace that he speaks of is his continual presence with us by the Spirit. Have you ever wondered to yourself, when we pronounce the apostolic greeting at the beginning of the service, which is drawn just from the beginning of all of Paul's letters, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's the Spirit? Why does he not say from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because the Spirit is the grace and peace. 
that God the Father and the Son sinned to you. What is sent to you is His grace and peace. The peace that Jesus says, I give it to you. In a, in a text where He's saying, I'm going to send a helper who's going to comfort you, who's going to lead you into the truth. When, when we face distressing situations, it's the Lord who puts joy in our hearts and sends His Holy Spirit to be grace and peace to us. So of course it doesn't matter what's happening around us or even to us. For the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we cry out to you with the words of this psalm, and we plead with you, to guard us from the temptation of believing slanderous lies, of taking personal vengeance, and of falling into hopeless despair. Arm us with the precious and superior truths of your gospel. Remind us of whose we are, that we have been bought with a price, that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also Give us all things and so deliver us from this distressing situation, whatever it is that we're facing. Free us by placing joy in our hearts so that we can lie down and rest in safety, so that we can be filled with a peace that surpasses understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper foreshadowed in the Old Covenant in the peace offering. The peace offering was often the culmination of the worship. And in their, in their worship service, just as in ours, it's very visceral. It's, it's the worshiper bringing a lamb or a goat and laying their hands on it and cutting its throat right there. And the blood pouring out in 